Our Father, we thank you for your word. Because it reveals things about you that we would not know otherwise. It reveals your will. It reveals your thoughts. It reveals what pleases you. And so we pray that you would use this time to reveal yourself to us through the study of your word. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would grant us understanding, not only to understand, and not just for the sake of understanding, but in order that we may live lives that are pleasing to you, because they glorify Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, two years ago, there was a woman, a young woman, who posted a video to YouTube. And the title of the video was, Dear Elders, I'm Sorry. For the record, she's talking to anyone who's over 40 years old (laughs) when she says elders. Um, So that that includes a lot of us in here today. Uh, Anyway, in this video, she talks about how she took it upon herself to try to evaluate what is so incredibly wrong with her own generation. And that would be the generation that we all refer to as millennials. she wanted to understand why geezers like us uh, seemed to be so angry at her generation. And she noted, quote, And then I pretty much realized we're just existing. We're not really contributing anything to society. End quote. Uh, I, I would take issue with that a little bit. But anyway, she proceeds to, to fire off uh, you know, one shot after another at her generation, noting that they have bad manners, that they are foul-mouthed, that they are lazy, entitled, that they spend too much time on the internet, that they don't respect their elders, that is, anyone over 40, uh, and, and that they're basically unpatriotic underperformers. And she notes that for her generation, the things that were once frowned upon in society are now celebrated. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I I understand that the temptation for a lot of people when they see the, the upcoming generation is to despair. That temptation can be very strong sometimes. It would be easy to think that the world just has no hope and it's all because of this upcoming generation. But you know what? Here's the thing. They were saying the same thing about my generation. Remember Generation X? Remember what they were saying about Generation X and what a bunch of losers we were? Uh, And what about the hippie generation before our generation? Remember that? The hippie generation, you know, and and before that, they, they were saying the same thing. In fact, let's go back just a little bit further than that. Let's go back 400 years before Jesus, when Plato said, Plato said this, 400 years before Jesus, quote, what is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets, inflamed with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? End quote. So obviously, this is not the first time in history <laughs> that a generation of, of old-timers, like, like those of us who are over 40, has had some concern about the upcoming generation, and, and it has put them on kind of full blast mode at times uh, by the older generations, and this won't be the last time. I look forward to the day when the millennial generation is saying the same thing about the younger generation when, when they reach my age. 
But all of that to say, this should force us to ask ourselves what we place our hope for the future in. Today we're going to be studying the 48th chapter of Genesis in which Jacob is on his deathbed. Now, we've, we've been studying Jacob for, I don't know how long, probably close to a year. And so we, we know that he's had a hard life. And in fact, we know that sometimes he still thinks about how hard his life circumstances have been at times. Remember when he went before Pharaoh, when he came into Egypt, he shared with Pharaoh how difficult his life had been. And then we saw last week that when Joseph came to be by Jacob's side with his two oldest sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, once again, Jacob started to share some painful memories that he had had over the course of his life. And yet what we saw was that Jacob, Israel, has become this man of great faith. Not because he's always been faithful to God, he certainly had not been, but because God had always been faithful to Jacob, despite all the tendencies that Jacob had to resist God. God was faithful to him. And so at the end of his life, Jacob has the right perspective on life. He trusts in God. He trusts in the promises of God. He trusts in the presence of God. He trusts in the providence of God. And he's eager, he's extremely eager at the end of his life to bless Joseph's two oldest sons. And we saw last week, actually, that he adopted them as his own before blessing them. Although I would argue that that is part of the blessing. We saw that Joseph essentially voiced no objections to this this adoption, but we also understood that the significance of this adoption, the, the significance of Jacob taking Joseph's two oldest sons as his own was, remember, his two oldest sons had Egyptian heritage, and their father, was a, Joseph, was a very powerful man. And so they had every temptation that we can imagine to be very worldly young men. But the significance of the adoption is that now these two young men, who could have risen to prominence and leadership and wealth and prestige in Egypt, would now identify with the people of God rather than with the people of the world. They would essentially replace Jacob's two oldest sons in terms of the inheritance. And the wonderful thing about Jacob at this point in the story is we come to a a conclusion of Genesis, really. We're getting so close to the conclusion. The wonderful thing about Jacob is that even though he is practically blind at this point, uh, has a lot of difficulty seeing, he sees the world so clearly. He sees the world much more clearly than he ever had in his life, and he sees it more clearly than anyone else, including Joseph at the time, was able to see, even those who had good eyes. He's got this amazing perspective on life. And so in our passage today, Jacob will continue to bless Joseph and his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he does so with great hope and great optimism in regards to the future, even though he knows, here's what we need to keep in mind, he knows that difficult times, extremely difficult times, are ahead for his descendants. He knows that the Lord had spoken this prophetic promise to his grandfather Abraham when the Lord said in Genesis 15, 13, 
Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And so, what's the context of Jacob's death? I mean, lo and behold, Jacob undoubtedly realizes that they are currently strangers in a strange land that's not their own, and thus we have to assume that he would at least fear or at least suspect that this is what's about to happen, that they are about to go through 400 years of slavery and oppression. But the point of our passage today is that, we have, that when we have the right perspective of God's sovereign goodness to His people and to His promises, we can look back on life with contentment and we can look forward to the future with confidence. So, having adopted Manasseh and Ephraim as his own sons, it's now time for them to receive the next blessing. The first blessing was for Jacob to testify to the greatness of, of God's power, God's saving power, and to adopt them as sons. But they, they needed the type of faith. They would need the type of faith that Jacob has in order to get through the next 400 years. So, let's see what happens from there as we continue. We'll, we'll start with just verses 12 and 13. Of chapter 48. Chapter 48, verses 12 and 13 say this Then Joseph took them, Manasseh and Ephraim, then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. So Joseph. Um, removes his sons from their grandfather's knees. And he bows in reverence before Jacob, before Israel. And, and you have to think, what a scene this must have been from the perspective of Manasseh and Ephraim because they knew that their father was this powerful man who probably didn't humble himself before much of anybody except for Pharaoh and, and the Lord. They'd seen him do that before Pharaoh, undoubtedly, but to see him show this kind of humility, this kind of reverence uh, to his refugee shepherd of a father shows great humility on Joseph's part. And so Joseph positions his sons in a way that reflects his expectation that Jacob would follow the cultural norms of the time, giving the greater blessing with his right hand to the older and a lesser blessing with his left hand to the younger. So he sets them up so that Manasseh, who is the older one, is on Jacob's right side and Ephraim is on the left side. But notice that Moses wants to make sure that we understand uh, exactly how this is set up. He makes it very clear for us exactly who's in what position. And this is significant. This is important for us to see. You know, once upon a time, Jacob was just such a swindler. He was so worldly, even after God revealed himself to Jacob and promised to protect him and provide for him. It often appeared that Jacob was just a slave to his flesh nature. He had so little understanding of spiritual things throughout the majority of his journey. But God has been so kind to Jacob. And maybe more than that, God has been so patient with Jacob. Jacob's transformation from being this 
swindling con man who's really always just looking out for his own best interests to becoming this godly man who's eager to bless and who is just completely confident in God. This transformation is a complete miracle. I mean, it's not lights and fog and you know, all kinds of, of mystical stuff. This is a greater miracle than that because he's completely changed who Jacob was, what Jacob was about, what he valued, what he loved. Joseph is also a very godly man. But he still has a lot to learn about the ways of God. Because for the first time in Joseph's story here, we're supposed to see that Jacob does something in obedience to God. He does something very right here, carrying out the will of God. But Joseph is upset about it. He, he would have done things very differently if it had been up to him. But at this point in Genesis, I would say we should almost kind of expect for God to do the unexpected. And that's exactly what happens here as Jacob is ready to bestow the blessings from God uh, that he himself was an unworthy recipient of. So let's continue. Look at, uh, let's look at verses 14 to 20. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, "You By you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. We need to understand that this is just scandalous. It's completely contrary to social norms. With the oldest on his right, Manasseh, and the youngest, Ephraim, on his left, Jacob crosses his hands. Joseph set him up in that way for a very specific reason. He expected things to be done according to what was normal. But he switches his hands. Jacob switches, crosses his hands over. I, I want you to see something very important, though, and that is that it doesn't say that Jacob did this. It says that Israel did it. And whenever he's referred to as Israel, we have the understanding that it's because he's acting in obedience to God there. It's because he's acting in accordance with the will of God in that situation. So when it says that Israel did it, it means that was the right decision. It means that was God's will. And that tells us that he was acting in faith and obedience to God here. So this is God's will. This is not Jacob's will that he's acting on. Jacob had learned the hard way 
that it's always better to obey what God says and what God wants. He learned the hard way that it's better to try to please God, to strive to to please God, even if that means angering people. And Joseph is angered. He's angered here. He's incensed. He, He can't believe his eyes. He can't believe that his father would cross his hands and give the blessing to the wrong child, in his opinion, the wrong child. And yet, before Joseph can say anything, apparently he's kind of dumbfounded uh, and doesn't say anything, but before he can speak, Israel blesses him. And he says in, in, in verses 15 and 16, he says this, and I, I absolutely love this. He says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. It's a prayer. Bless the lads. And may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. That's just such a a tender blessing. Jacob is such a, a, a gentle man. And he's just opening his heart up here. And there's an element in this, this prayer that just stirs the, the depths of my heart. And it, it's this. It's that he has such an endearing and, and an affectionate view of God at the end of his life. He loves the Lord. He loves the Lord and he, and he trusts the Lord. And therefore, he's able to look back on his life and feel content. He's been a man who knew pain and who knew hardship and who knew incredible loss at times. Think of the 20 years that he spent working for his uncle Laban just to get Rachel's hand in marriage. There was great loss there. He could have spent that time accumulating all kinds of worldly treasure. But he sees, he looks back and he sees God's good and sovereign hand in every aspect of his life along the journey. And he says this, he says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. Don't you love that? Because Jacob himself was a shepherd. He knew the kinds of sacrifices that a shepherd has to make. He knew the kind of love that a shepherd has to have. You know, last week I, I, I likened us to wild dogs and, and God to a master who tames us and, and teaches us to, to quit pulling so hard at the leash and to find comfort at His feet. And I, I suppose that maybe the reason that I would draw that analogy is because I've spent so much time uh, investing in and, and loving on and taming my own dogs. Uh, in case you don't know, I absolutely love dogs. Uh, and, and so I see a lot of parallels between my relationship to the dogs, the way I relate to them, and, and the way that God relates to me, and, and conversely, the way I relate to, to God. But let me say this. Loving on a dog is pretty easy compared to being a shepherd. It's nothing compared to what a shepherd has to do. Listen to what Jacob himself said about his job as a shepherd when he was confronting his uncle Laban, uh, preparing to leave back in chapter 31, uh, verses 38 to 42. He said this, this is the life of a shepherd. He says, these 20 years I've been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. 
That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me and the frost by night. And my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. You get the idea that shepherding isn't easy work. In fact, it, it's not. In the daytime, it, it's scorching hot. At night, it's freezing cold. You, you really don't have time to get a full, solid you know, night of sleep ever. That's the life of a shepherd. I mean, what are some, some ways that we would describe a shepherd's life? What are some words that, that pop into your mind when you think about a, a shepherd's life? It's difficult, right? It, it, it requires incredible, incredible personal sacrifice, doesn't it? It requires patience. It requires love and devotion to the sheep. You see, Jacob knew the life of a shepherd. And he knew sheep. He knew that they're the kind of animal that startles very, very easily. And because they startle so easily, they can be thrown this way and that just by one fearful rabbit jumping out from behind a stone. It can cause them to stampede unto their own death. And they're also very cruel animals by nature. The bigger ones, the stronger ones, will drive away, will bully away the, the weaker and the smaller ones. Sheep are also stupid. <laughs> they, they aren't sure exactly where to go on their own. Uh, they will, they'll eat. The, the grass that's before them, and when the grass is gone, they don't stop. They just keep going down into the roots of the plant. And they'll destroy an entire uh, you know, part of land just uh, you know, so it won't grow. It won't grow back again to, to feed them in the future. And so as Jacob spent years and years and years of his life shepherding, he undoubtedly spent a lot of time also contemplating and thinking about the ways, thinking about how God was a good shepherd and about how he, about how Jacob was such a wayward sheep, such a difficult sheep to tame. He, he knew the way that, that a shepherd must break the will of the sheep and must firmly discipline wayward sheep as a means of teaching them to quit wandering astray. Just like David who obviously would come you know, centuries after Jacob, Jacob also would have said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and, their, and your staff, they comfort me. This is Jacob's perspective of God. This is the perspective that we were talking about last week. This is the way that Jacob saw the Lord. 
And so he speaks this, this amazing, this, this absolutely beautiful blessing over Manasseh and Ephraim in the name of the living God who rescues and redeems and shepherds his people. See, when we have the right perspective of God's sovereign goodness unto His people, we can look back on life with contentment and we can look forward to the future with confidence. And that's where Jacob is at this point. What's amazing, maybe even more amazing than, uh, than, than um, you know, this, this, the beauty of this blessing, what's amazing is that Joseph is still irritated even after this blessing. He's a fallen person just like you and me. He's got a flesh nature just like you and me. And so he's, he's still irritated. He, he can't get his attention away from the fact that, that Israel, not Jacob, that Israel put his hands across one another to bless the wrong son. And so Joseph kind of breaks protocol here. He, he interrupts this, this ceremonial blessing. He grabs the hand of his 147-year-old father and he tries to switch the hands back. He tries to rebuke and, and correct his father. His father had broken every single rule in the book when it comes to bestowing a blessing. Had, had, he, had he lost his mind? Had Israel lost his mind here? I mean, Manasseh had lived his entire life being the older son having the privilege of being the, the oldest son and with the expectation in this adoption that he would be the oldest son. And so this would have seemed like humiliation for him. But at this point, there's nothing that Joseph or, or anybody could do. The blessing's already been spoken. And one of the things we saw last week is once the blessing's spoken, it's irrevocable. You can't take it back. There's, there's no taking it back. Israel couldn't take back what had been given even if... He wanted to. But here's the thing. He doesn't want to. He doesn't want to take it back. And the reason that he didn't want to take it back is because the blessing really didn't come from him ultimately. It was from God. It had taken Israel a lifetime to learn to do only what God desires. And that's why the author of Hebrews, when he mentions the faith of Jacob, this is the only event that the author of Hebrews looks back on and he says that, that he worshipped here. He calls this worship because his heart, because Jacob's heart and his mind are turned to God in humble obedience to him. So Israel isn't just making this up as he goes along. This isn't Israel's will. He's not just pulling it out of thin air. He's speaking and he's acting under the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Manasseh would still become great, and, and he would become a nation. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jacob says that the younger, Ephraim, would become a multitude of nations. Now don't miss this. Israel, or, or Jacob, but he's Israel here because he's acting in accordance with God's will. Israel is hopeful for the future, even though he knows that hardships are unquestionably ahead for his people. So why is he so hopeful? I would say he, he's got three simple reasons. It's because, number one, he knows that what God has promised. Number two, he knows what God can do. And number three, he knows what God has planned. He knows who God is, he knows what God has promised, and he knows what God can do. And so he's not only content looking back on his life, he's confident 
looking to the future, knowing that God is sovereign and sovereign over all of human history. So, let's go back to what we talked about at the beginning. What about you? When it comes to the millennial generation, are you, are you shaken? Are you not hopeful for the future of this country? Are you not hopeful for the future of the church specifically? Do you worry about the future of the church in our country? Do you worry about what the younger generations that follow after them will do? Because they can't and and they won't do anything that God Himself has not sovereignly ordained. There are no surprises coming at God. He, He knows it all. He has ordained it all. Yes, they will probably face hardships. Yes, the influence of the church in the culture may diminish, but God is still sovereign over it all. God is going to do what God is going to do. He's not only sovereign, but He's good. Human rebellion isn't going to thwart His will. Not in America. Not anywhere. And knowing that should be something that would cause us to be hopeful. Because whenever it feels like everything is out of control, we need to remind ourselves that, man, our our perspective is so tainted by sin. That's one of the things that's wrong with, you know, the, the whole idea that truth is whatever your perspective is. No, sin taints our perspective. What's true is what God's Word says is true. We know God. And because we know God, we know what God can do. We know that God is sovereign. And so we can look forward to the future with confidence. Yeah, things might change. That's okay. Nothing's going to happen that God Himself is not in control over. There are quite a few parallels that we see here between the blessing that Israel gives and the blessing that he had received from his father Isaac. You remember Isaac had every intention of defying what God had sovereignly decreed. He had every intention of giving the blessing not to Jacob, whom God had, had already chosen. And he already knew that. Isaac already knew that. But he, 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 tried, he had every intention to give the blessing to Esau, the older brother. And when Isaac realized what had happened, when he realized that he had been duped, that, that he'd been swindled by Jacob, do you remember what his reaction to that was? To his realization. His reaction was to tremble and shake violently. So angry that God had his way. He had intended to resist God's will and to resist God's sovereign decree, but he had failed. And not only did he fail, but in the midst of his sin, where he failed, he lost his son, his younger son. He lost Jacob, who was forced to flee for his life. His folly had disastrous consequences. But let me say this, acting in willful disobedience to God always does have disastrous consequences in one way or another. Always. Always. Know that. Remember that and live in light of that. But Israel, at this point, is determined not to make the same mistakes that his father had made in bestowing the blessing. 
God had made His will known, and Israel was not going to dispute God's will. He wasn't going to disobey God's will. He acts in accordance with God's will. And it's an act of worship. And so he blesses the younger son. He blesses Ephraim with the blessing that would have been Manasseh's according to man's tradition and man's ways of thinking. And he looks forward to the future with confidence because Israel understands that God is sovereign over all of history. He's sovereign over the past. He's sovereign over the present. He's sovereign over the future. And he knows it. And it gives him confidence. And this blessing is a reminder of the sovereignty of God, isn't it? It reminds us that our God is a God who sometimes surprises us, who doesn't always do things the way we think He should do things. It reminds us that our God is a God who loves and exalts the humble. He's a God who lavishes His grace on the lowly and is a mighty fortress for those who walk in fear of Him. His Word is filled with hope for, the, for, for this kind of person, for the, for the proverbial younger sons in our world, the, the overlooked, the unlovable, the unlikely, the outcast and the downcast. God's grace never yields to the ways of fallen man. His grace is sovereign. It cannot be constrained. It cannot be restrained by anyone other than God Himself. And that's exactly why in God's kingdom, often the first are last and the last shall be first. And that's a theme that's repeated all throughout the book of Genesis, isn't it? Let's think back to the beginning of, of Genesis. The older brother Cain, he, he's strong. He's, he's, a, he's proud. He's probably pretty smart. But God's favor is upon Abel, whose heart is set on obeying God and pleasing God. And so Cain murders Abel, thinking, I, I want this blessing. I, I, I want God's favor. So he murders Abel in a jealous rage, but the chosen line of the Messiah still didn't go to Cain. It went to Seth. In Abraham's line, the oldest son was Ishmael. But Ishmael didn't get the blessing. Rather, God chose Isaac to be the one who would get the blessing. And then in Isaac's line, Jacob was chosen over Esau in chapter 27. Jacob's son Joseph was chosen over all of his older brothers. And now Ephraim is chosen rather than Manasseh. God's grace is sovereign. It doesn't conform to the ways of fallen man. And so thus it was demonstrated that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy, as Paul puts it in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. That's difficult for us to wrap our minds around this. It's, it's difficult in our flesh to be counted and considered among the foolish, among the weak, among the hated and the despised of this world. But Scripture reveals to us that God delights in showing mercy and grace to such people. And His Word shows us how God uses broken vessels, sinful people, to accomplish His purposes and to bring glory to His name. 
So God's gospel invites us. In fact, it commands us to trust in Him. Not to just have some kind of intellectual knowledge like, okay, I know that there's a God. Just like you would say like when you come to a river, okay, I know that there's a bridge here. But to actually step out and trust in God. To walk across that bridge, trusting that it will hold us to the other side. It invites us to have confidence in God. And to abandon any and every temptation that we might have to put all of our hope and all of our dreams and all of our desires in the the, the fleeting things of this world. And instead, to trust in the promises of God. This is what God, in His ever-abiding faithfulness, taught Israel, or Jacob, to do. And so at the end of his life, Israel is hopeful. And he's hopeful because he knows and trusts God. He sees God as his good shepherd. Not only his shepherd, but as the shepherd who would continue to faithfully tend to his own flock when Jacob's time on earth runs out. If you are a sheep in God's flock, you too should be able to look back on your life and to see the way that God rescued you, the way that He has loved you, the way that He has disciplined you, the way that He has protected you, the way that He has provided for you, the way that He's taught you to follow Him rather than wandering astray, even if that means following Him into the valley of the shadow of death. Because He's a good shepherd. And if you're in Christ, that should be your testimony. You should see these things in your life. You should be able to look back and see exactly what Christ meant when He, being fully God and fully man, called Himself the Good Shepherd who knows and calls His sheep by name and they follow Him and who lays down His life for the sheep. Jesus declares this. He says, In John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. Let me ask you this. Is that the testimony of your life? As you look back, and you consider the way that God relates to you, and as you, as you consider the way your, your, your affections may have changed since you became a Christian, is this the testimony of your life? That you have not been snatched out of His hand? That He has been a good shepherd to you? If your answer is yes, then you too can look back on every aspect of your life, every single part of your life with contentment, and you can look forward with confidence. See, it's all about having the right perspective, really. Seeing God for who He is. Seeing God for for what He's done and for what He's promised to do. He promises this. Jesus promises this. He says, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. From Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He promises this. John chapter 6, verse 37. He promises this. He says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. 
He promises, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. That's from John chapter 14, verse 21. You know, there, there are a lot of promises in John. You think, I, I've been studying for our John series. I, I, I can't wait. But he promises so many things, so many great blessings. Among the greatest of those blessings being his ever-abiding faithfulness to preserve his people in accordance with his purposes. And Israel at the end of his life, laying on his deathbed. He's got such great confidence in that. I want to have that kind of confidence too, don't you? Let's look at the last couple of verses of the chapter, which will reflect this in incredible confidence that, that Israel has in, uh, in God and the future. It says this, verses 21 and 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the land of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Joseph had such great faith in God. And his sons would also have great faith in God. And Israel is more than happy to give Joseph a, a double blessing. He, he gives him first a spiritual blessing, then a material blessing. The material blessing is, is great, right? But it's the spiritual blessing that is so profound. And it's the spiritual blessing that, that lasts unto eternity. See, Israel knows that he's standing at the door, at the precipice of, of death. He knows his, his time in this world is about to run out but while he doesn't exactly know what the future holds, he knows this. He says, I am about to die, but God will be with you. But God will be with you. And from beginning to end, really, this is the testimony of Jacob's life, isn't it? Thinking back over the course of his life, when he first appeared to Jacob in Bethel, he promised Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And then after 20 years of, of serving his uncle Laban, God called Jacob back to Canaan, instructing him this, saying, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Two verses after that, Jacob takes, takes Rachel and Leah out into a field to talk about his plans to leave. And he says this, he says, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but... The God of my father has been with me. When his household was in spiritual disarray, living in, and they're living in the region of Shechem, where his daughter had been raped and two of his sons had gone on this genocidal killing spree, Jacob said, Let us arise and go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my, dis in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And now, at the end of his life, Israel knows that God's still there and that this promise will also apply to his sons. God will be with them. God's promise to be with Jacob is the exact same promise that he makes to us in Christ. 
Toward the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus talked about all these terrible things that, that are coming in this age. There would be false Christs. There would be wars. There would be famines. There would be earthquakes. There would be this incredible persecution. Uh, there would be a great apostasy. And he warned of the days that were coming that would be so incredibly terrible that they would actually be supernaturally cut short by God for the sake of preserving the lives of the elect. And shortly after that, Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, and he died. And three days after that, he was raised again from the grave. And before he left them once again and ascended into heaven, where he's now reigning from the right hand of the Father, he gave us what's called the Great Commission, which is the call to share the gospel and to make disciples of the nations. And he concluded with this, with this promise, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. If you have never repented and put true saving faith in Christ Jesus, God is present. He sees every aspect of every molecule of existence, but He is not with you and He is not for you. In fact, He is against you. But you have to know that if you hear the Word of God and you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd calling you, and if you will follow, if you'll take up your cross and deny yourself and follow, repenting and trusting for your salvation in Christ, here are God's promises to you. The first, and these are all amazing, is that your sin will be taken away from you. If you were to have a picture of it right now, you'd be carrying around a mound of sin that you are just buried in. But if you will repent and believe in Christ, He will take that from you. He will take all that sin from you. And He'll put it on Christ. And in exchange, He'll take the perfect, righteous robes of Christ and put them on you. Your sin will be counted among the sin that was punished on Calvary. God's own righteousness will be transferred to you. It will be imputed to you, rendering you unblemished by sin in the eyes of God. As unblemished by sin as Christ Himself was. And this promise will apply to you. God will be with you. He will dwell within you. He will be for you. This is not entering into a relationship with God. If you are not in Christ, you already have a relationship with God. It's the relationship that a guilty criminal has to a righteous judge. It's a changing of relationship. You go from being this guilty criminal to being friend. By faith in Christ alone. Now if you've done this, Jacob's perspective, his optimism, can be yours. And you can cling to it. You can hold to it until your time on earth expires. You will experience trials and hardship and maybe even personal loss. After all, God did promise, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But you will have gained. You may have lost, but you will have gained confidence that God is good and God is sovereign 
And like a good shepherd, he laid down his life for you and has promised you an eternity in his presence. See, the time is coming when your time on earth will expire. It's coming for every single one of us. But Christ, whose name is Emmanuel, which means God with us, is faithful to the end. He's promised that. And we can cling to that promise. And so as we draw closer to the time when our time on earth expires, even now, we too can look back on life with contentment. We can look at the present with contentment. And we can look to the future with great hope and optimism and confidence, knowing that God is good and that God is sovereign. And knowing that Christ is our inheritance and thus all of God's promises are ours to live by. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, thank you for your incredible faithfulness to your people to your plans, to your promises. Lord, we confess before you that we are so prone to trust in other things, to hope for other things, to aspire and desire for other things. But we pray, Lord, for the contentment that comes from knowing that you're sovereign over all. And that whatever our lot in life may be, whatever may come, you're with us. You have not forsaken us. You never will forsake us. What you have begun, the work that you have begun in us, you will complete. And that we have an eternity of joy and peace ahead of us. And so give us optimism, Lord, for the future. Not because of the direction that fallen man is going, but because you, you are sovereign and you are good and you are faithful. Teach us, Lord, to walk in the light of these promises that Christ may be magnified and glorified in our lives. We pray in his name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.